Hello again, everybody. This is Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager. This is episode 79 of the History Voyager. This is an episode where I talk to a young woman named Rachel, who is in charge of a website, and she works in an organization that educates essentially young people about the system of government in Britain. And this is much more important than something like that would be here for reasons that we are going to find out. And it was totally amazing to me. I just wanted to talk for a second, if I could, about why I'm doing this. The reason I'm doing this is because I think democracy is a big deal, and I think it's very fragile. It's not perfect. I'll grant you that. I'll grant anybody that. But it's also the best thing we've got going. It's the best thing humans have discovered as far as governance is concerned. And I think it's very fragile indeed. And with that in mind, I just want us to listen to this and I'm going to have others come on the podcast and talk about democracy. And this is going to be a, a thing I do on this podcast. And anyway, like I always tell you guys, I'm having a good day and I hope you are too. All right. See you on the flip side. Why don't you tell me in your own words who you are and why I wanted to talk to you? Hi, I am Rachel and I'm from the UK and I run a website called Voting Counts, which um, is a resource for mainly young people to get them involved in politics, answer the questions they have about elections um, so that they're encouraged to get involved and get voting for the first time. And I guess we wanted to chat about democracy in general, why people should get involved and some of the issues going on in British politics. Uh, yes, ma'am. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm from the south. I say, ma'am, to any any female at all. Sorry. <laughs> all right. So let me ask you a question. Um, what is the age of voting age in Britain? First of all, so it's eighteen to vote in general elections. But um, more recently, um, a lot of the um, so you've got Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and England that make up the UK. And in Wales and Scotland, they've recently passed legislation to allow 16-year-olds to vote in their national elections. So you have to be 16 to vote in your, your Scottish and Welsh Parliament elections, but 18 to vote everywhere else. There's a lot of pressure to lower it to 16 across the board, but we'll have to wait and see if that actually comes off. Okay. Let me ask you a question uh, real quick, because you just said something that I know what you mean, but I'm sure lots of my listeners <laughs> don't. Uh, you said national elections. So yep. in the UK, uh, Britain, uh, I'm sorry, uh, England, uh, Scotland, and Wales, and Northern Ireland mm -hmm. are essentially what you call different nations. Yes, different countries. Uh, yeah, yes. Ma okay. And they were unified by the law of 1700. Seven? I, yes, <laughs> going oh. back to my university degree there. Um, Let yes, me give myself a cookie. <laughs> um, but in uh, in 1999, um, you had the Blair government who wanted to do something called devolution, and that's all about kind of um, giving powers back to those nations and allowing them to govern themselves in many areas of policy. So you had the Welsh Parliament created um, called the Senate 
in Welsh and you had the Scottish Parliament created and then also you, obviously under Blair you had the Good Friday Agreement and um, the Northern Irish Assembly are created as well. Okay, okay, fantastic. All right, so that gets that out of the way. So <laughs> Wales has different, I guess it's different laws than say England. So they have, have different have things called um, devolved competencies so they'll look after things like healthcare and education for example in Wales it's really important um, for Welsh people to learn the Welsh language so that's really important within their education system but in England that's not part of our education system so they have the ability to kind of make their own laws in those policy areas but um, essentially um, the UK parliament remains sovereign as they call it um, and they retain things, uh, powers over things like foreign affairs and a lot of um, economic measures as well. Okay. All right. Now we're going to play Almanac. All right. How many people live in the UK? About? Oof, I would Probably about 65 million. All right. Okay. So roughly double the size of California, <laughs> uh, give or take. All right. Okay, I just wanted to give my listeners some kind of a context of what's yeah. going on. All right, so so how is voting for young people um, in the UK? How how is that? Is it so? It's it's one of those things that voting in the UK seems very traditional. You go down to your local village hall and you take your pencil and you mark across in the box. We don't have the voting machines that the US do. Um, we do have postal voting, which I think you call absentee ballots, and um, that's very popular amongst university students and things like that that can't get to a polling station easily. But essentially, on polling day, between 7am and 10pm, you go down to your local village hall or school and you queue up and you vote. And it's not very glamorous, and we're not really taught about it in schools. Um, from personal experience we had something called citizenship which was like an hour a week where you'd discuss these kind of issues but my teacher was a science teacher so she'd use that time to kind of discuss sex education or drug and alcohol um, education but we didn't learn about politics because she wasn't a politics teacher so often young people leave school never having been told what they're voting for how how to vote um, what the different levels of government do and how actually politics affects your life. So that's why I started my organisation to try and get people informed so that when they Googled, well, who am I voting for? What am I voting for? They actually had somewhere to start. That is astonishing. You can't see my face, but <laughs> my jaw, if it could be on the floor, would be on the floor. <laughs> I think it's a really mixed bag. Like you could go to a really good school that had loads of um, really passionate teachers about this and you could have mock elections and you could have um, teachers that taught politics and, and have a really great education or you have nothing. There seems to be no in-between in the UK. Okay. Um, so right off the, uh, as we say in America, right off the bat, that's a baseball term. Uh, <laughs> right off the bat, there's, there's a thing in my mind that I'm just uh, just hits me upside the head, which is um, in this country we fund education at the county level mm -hmm. for better or worse. For better or worse, we fund education at the county level. So you can have sort of this hodgepodge of 
standards where you could have before they instituted semi-national testing or whatever. Yeah. Uh, But the point I'm trying to get at is, is it possible that you could be in some county somewhere and have the county might decide to give the students of the county a better background in what we would call civics in this country or not? So it is really dependent. So we have kind of a national curriculum, which is dictated to at the national level, and that will cover things like English, math, science. Um, And then as you get to subjects that um, may be deemed soft, i.e. art, drama, um, civics, as it were, it can sometimes come down to even just the school level on the resourcing. Do they have teachers that can specialise in those subjects? Um, It can come down to um, whether that school is owned by the local authority and run by the local authority. Um, We have things called free schools and academies in the UK, which are run almost like a business. And then also we have private schools, which are outside of the the public domain. I think it's the other way around in the US, public and private. Um, But private schools are completely independent and they they can set their own um, curriculums. But exams etc are pretty much standard across the uk with gcses and we have a slightly different system in scotland and wales but essentially the exams are the same but you don't have kind of a standard exam in citizenship it's seen as um like a non-exam subject that you would learn about in any spare time that you might have in the week or in the term but often teachers are so busy trying to cram in the national curriculum on english math science and um all the rest of the subjects that it's not a priority and we have very few teachers that really specialize in those subjects in the UK. I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. Why? Um, Why? It seems like a, uh, trying to be non-judgmental here. This seems like an incredibly odd way to run a democracy. (laughs) I mean, I'm not a, education policy specialist so I couldn't tell you the ins and outs but from my point of view it's simply resourcing you have a certain amount of time in a day and a certain amount of teachers and these teachers are specialized in their subjects and you have exams that you've got to get your kids to work towards that um, determine how your school is judged and all these kind of things and so you will naturally prioritize those core subjects and if you have time then great like in my school it was great we had a one hour of citizenship a week it just happened to be that my citizenship teacher was a science teacher. So she did what she knew about. If you're a teacher and you're expected to teach politics and actually you don't really know what you're talking about in the first place, then how can you be possibly expected to talk about that? It really varies school to school, region to region in that um, side of things, I think. Um, And again, I'm not a specialist in that area. So um, some people may disagree with me, but that's from personal experience. The most fascinating thing about doing this podcast is how much I'm learning, (laughs) irrespective of what anybody else in one of the most listened to independent podcasts that isn't about sex or murder listens to. (laughs) The most fascinating thing is what I learned. (laughs) Good Lord. Um, Okay. Let me actually talk about what I wanted to talk to you about. Okay. (laughs) I, I could talk about that all day long, but I don't want to do that. Um, I want to talk to you about uh, Brexit. Okay. Um, first of all, why don't you tell my listeners 
in your own words, basically what that is. Okay. So for the past 40 years or so, um, the United Kingdom has been part of the European Union or previously in its other formats. Um, essentially, this is a economic block of countries, um, 27, 28 member states. And in 2016, we had a referendum on our membership of that um, economic block. And it was a very close election. Um, it was a very divisive election in on both sides on both sides of the debate, and it resulted in a very close one victory for Brexit or British exit from the European Union. So the politics that followed have been incredibly complex and unlike anything we've ever seen in the UK in terms of kind of the political arguments and the debates, and it's it has been fascinating to follow. But in January this year, 2020, we left the European Union and entered a transition period. And during those 11 months since then, we've been negotiating with the EU on a future free trade agreement, which was signed, on, well, it was signed last night, um, gained royal assent by from the Queen um, on the 31st of December. And as of tomorrow, 1st of January 2021, we're officially out, even though we've been out for 11 months, but we are no longer in the transition period. And we're into a new era where we have a trade deal with the European Union rather than being a member. Okay, so, all right. Now, I, I know about that because I'm, you know, I'm, I consider myself a well-read person. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I, I look at it, Sort of, I mean, I can see kind of both uh, sides or both kind of arguments here. So why don't you lay out what being in the EU would have been like for the average person on the street or the average person in, in a town, say? This is the thing. I think um, we have been a member so long that I think a lot of people didn't really um, see its impact on their everyday lives. It was very much a, if you run a business that trades with the EU or you're someone who is a, an EU citizen and moves between EU countries freely, given freedom of movement, you'd notice it. But if maybe you were just going about your everyday life, um, you probably wouldn't notice the ins and outs of it. Um, now, however, given that it is a massive part of the public consciousness, given the debates that have gone on since 2016, um, you probably would notice a bit more of it um, affecting your life. So a lot of it is around regulation of goods and services. Um, it's about um, kind of freedom of travel across the, across the countries. Um, you'll also have um, the kind of sovereignty. So there is the um, European Court. Uh, so that has some effect as an appeals court. And I'm just trying to <laughs> rattle through. So yeah. it really, I think if you're if you're a business, you probably had the most um, awareness of it um, pre okay. the referendum. Well, let me. Okay, so let me. Let's do this. I, I distinctly remember sitting in a college class. And learning that Great Britain was about the size of my state plus the state of Alabama. Okay. Okay. So let's let's just say that. So let's say like if I was a British citizen, or if I were a British citizen, 
let's try to talk the Queen's English, Ben. If I were if I were a British citizen, and I was sitting in say I don't know London, mm-hmm. and I was going oh you know I want to have like dinner or I guess supper in France. I would just I would get on I would what I would get on the train or the or the tunnel yeah. and I would go to France, pull up at the restaurant, <laughs> have supper, go home. Yes, nice and easy. That is freedom of movement for you. Um, okay. And it's even easier if you're actually on the continent because they have something called the Schengen zone, um, which is a, a free movement um, cooperation where the UK was technically not in the Schengen zone. Um, but that goes into a lot of policy detail that you don't really need to know. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so, okay. So if, okay. But so outside now, of, so now, now we've left yeah. the EU, um, you still can do that. So you'll still have to show your passport at the board, at, at the, at the um, airport, just as you would have always done. Um, because it doesn't really change if you're staying for a short trip. It just means um, there is extra steps involved when if you're intending to live or work in another country in the EU. Okay, so maybe the maybe the dinner example was a was a terrible <laughs> example. Uh, so okay, can could you have driven from Britain to France, for example? You'd have to get on a ferry, but yes. Okay, so that's all right. I remember my Top Gear correctly. <laughs> there is there is a body of water between the UK and France, but oh, yes, you uh, can essentially get in your car, get on a ferry, and be in France within a few hours. I love British history, so I knew that. Uh, <laughs> I, I know a lot about uh, the the monarchs and the queens and things, uh, but lots of people probably didn't, maybe. But uh, so okay. So, uh, so you can still like stamp your passport, have dinner, and go home. That was the um, thing, actually. Technically, when you when you were a Brit traveling to Europe, you didn't actually get your passport stamped. I know every time I used to go to Italy, I'd be like, "Please, can you stamp my passport?" And they're like, "Nope, you're not meant to because you're traveling within the EU." But now we will get extra stamps in our passport. So there you go. There's a positive for you. Be careful what you wish for, because you just <laughs> might get it. Um, okay. So let me ask, um, how might, okay. So working, um, so when you get paid, so say like if I live in London and Mm -hmm. work in France or I'm saying London, cause that's a city I'm thinking of, but what's actually the closest city to, to mainland Europe in, in England or in Britain? Um, you'd probably be looking at somewhere like Dover. Or maybe even Hull, if you're going across to the Netherlands. You're testing my geography now. But yeah, London is close enough. It's got a direct train link straight to Paris and Amsterdam. So let's say, like, if you're getting a job in, say, mainland Europe, but you want to live in Britain because of reasons. Uh, So how hard is that now? Um, It will... I mean... There is a thousand page trade agreement for us all to read through, Um, (laughs) which came out only a few days ago. So the real details, I mean, I will admit that I I don't know. But essentially, the way the UK is doing it 
is um, they would they are implementing what they call an Australian style point system for immigration. So if you want to come and work in the UK and you're from anywhere in the world, you have to kind of earn a certain amount of points to get over a threshold. Those points might include like your salary, your qualifications, all those kind of things add up to give you a score. Once you're over a certain score, you can come and work, live in the work in the UK. That's how it has always really worked for non-EU citizens. The argument they had was that this would bring EU citizens in line with the, how the rest of the world gets jobs in the UK. Now, there's obviously debates about both sides and the merits of that. But previously, if you lived in Paris, you could come to the UK and work here. No thresholds, no, you could, as long as you applied for the job and got it in a, um, the usual way, there was nothing to stop you doing that. Now, if you're already living in the UK and you're an EU citizen, say you're French, you're living in the UK, the government has allowed people to apply for something called settled status, which is kind of one step away from citizenship. So you'd still be French, but you've got settled state status to live and work in the UK. That was just so that the three million people that were living in the UK um, from the EU didn't suddenly feel like they had to go home. That's not the case. They were welcome to stay and continue their lives in the UK. Okay. Now, I read a lot about the Erasmus, I'm going to say it wrong, the Erasmus <laughs> program or the Erasmus. Yeah. That, to me, from what I've been reading, that's the program that's going to be get hit, get hit the hardest? Question so, so Erasmus is um, kind of a study exchange program. It means that you can go study abroad for a year. Um, it's quite popular in the UK. Like I had a few friends that went off and studied in different countries. Um, and it's it's a really great way um, for people to kind of access funds to help them study abroad. Um, now, the UK's argument, um, and again, this was only announced a couple of days ago, so we're still learning more each day. Um, the UK's opinion was that they didn't kind of get as much out as they were putting into it. So with the EU, a lot of things you everyone puts in, a, puts in their money and then it gets dished out kind of um, appropriately. The British didn't feel like they were getting enough back, so um, they've decided to establish their own scheme called the Turing Scheme, named after um, Alan Turing. And okay, wait, okay, okay. <laughs> I know what scheme means because I studied that word in school. Yeah, lots of people in my in my country hear the word scheme and think of something nefarious, and that's not at all what it means. Okay, so it's anal it's analogous to like a program, like a government yes. program. So. We say program, you say scheme. I'm sorry, please continue. <laughs> yeah, so the Turing scheme or program will be, um, as the government are saying that it will be a scheme in similar way to Erasmus, so it's an exchange program to allow you to go study abroad, but it won't just be limited to Europe. It will allow people to go and study across the world. Now, again, that was only announced a couple of days ago, so we really don't know the details, whether it's going to, how much funding is going into it, whether it's really going to rival Erasmus. Um, but that's the provision they've put in place, having withdrawn from Erasmus. Well, I don't think, I mean, from an outsider's perspective, I don't see how it could because you have 30-something million people versus so many more millions in the rest of Europe, mm -hmm. right? And if memory serves, the German economy is so much bigger than 
the British economy. Do I have that right? I mean, there's just so yeah, many so, parts there. As I say, we're like, I don't know the details of the scheme. It's still kind of coming out in dribs and drabs until it's actually launched. Um, but the intention that they're talking about is for it to be so you can go study more easily in Australia or America or Canada. Um, there's a big push from the government at the moment on the kind of the Commonwealth and reconnecting with it. But there is certainly and they're not excluding Europe from the scheme either. So it's not like um, um, they're set, moving away from Europe. The rhetoric over the past few days from both. Ursula von der Leyen, who's the EU Commission president, and Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister, is that they want to continue to have a relationship. That's why we've got a trade deal. This is not Britain, as I'm paraphrasing, but this is not Britain turning its back on Europe. It's just a new relationship. That's the message they're trying to say. So it remains to be seen how much that happens in practice. So the Erasmus, I guess, let me use your word, scheme is for the entire planet and not just for Europe. That's the intention. Okay. That's interesting. Um, wow. I'll have to keep an eyeball on that. Um, <laughs> so talk about, I remember now, if you don't want to talk about this, that's totally fine, but talk about one of the things was the, the, uh, the, the criminal laws in there. There was a lot of thinking about, the criminal laws in, in different European countries didn't necessarily line up. You know, I, I think that was one of the drivers for Brexit to begin with. I think it was less that when people talk about kind of law in terms of Brexit, a lot of people felt that um, it's, it's, it was more to do with sovereignty and about where um, our laws are made and where they sit. So it's about, um, well, if you have elected member of the European Parliament, how accountable are they compared to a member of Parliament? They're setting laws, but um, you also have the European Courts of Justice. Um, and it's, it's all about the kind of the governance structure. And a lot of people had a problem with that the highest court in the lands almost were in Europe. Now that may be misguided view, I'm not a, a law, um, graduate. That but, does sound a little problematic, even as you're just saying it. I mean, it does sound a little, you know, that, that'd be like in Toronto or something. It was. I don't live, I don't live in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and a lot of people, I think, um, and I'm I'm speaking politically neutrally, but I'm uh, uh, I'm inferring what people on both sides of the debate kind of um, thought. But I think many people saw it as they didn't feel connected to those institutions, the European Parliament, the um, European Court of Justice. Um, the European Parliament has notoriously low turnout in the UK. Um, we had quite high turnout in the last elections, but that's because there was a political argument going on. But that's a story for another time. But notoriously have had really low turnout, so people didn't feel represented by those um, elected. And they felt that um, the UK Parliament should be sovereign. And the UK Parliament should be the ones making laws. Oh. So it was less about whether they agreed with what Germany or France were doing in terms of their laws. It was more about, well, you could be saying exactly the same thing as our politicians, but we just would rather have our politicians make that decision, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah. I mean, 
plus like in in European countries there's probably a lot more um you know like my ancestors came from Europe right mm -hmm. and i i bet you anything like your ancestors probably lived you know a lot of them right right around the same village yeah for a long time so there's probably a lot of more what is the word i'm even trying to look for it, it, it's, it's nationalism with a small n, um, as it were. It, it's a sense of kind of that. One of the theories that I learned about when I was doing my undergraduate degree was yeah. why why do people join the European Union? And there was a really interesting theory that I, I read about, and it said that if you look at a lot of the states that are members of the EU, they've had recent dictatorships in the past 100, 200 years. They've had huge civil unrest or they've had massive upturns in their constitution they've gone through a lot and matured as a result of it you like you look at france used to have a monarchy and, and went went through a revolution to overthrow it I mean, italy's, a political ba italy's a political basket case so. <laughs> but britain <laughs> never really had that we didn't have a post-war state like germany did to try and rebuild we did in some ways with the Marshall Plan and things like that, but we haven't had the same political unrest in our history that a lot of other European states had. And there's a theory that goes that um, that states that that's why Britain has always been an uneasy partner in this. We didn't. We felt sovereign. We felt like we knew our place in the world. And where other states were still growing, we're still young countries in their um, current state that um, kind of political and economic group offered that support to those countries and has delivered peace and stability in Europe. I mean, also, uh, some of my listeners might not be aware of this, but something that I think, I mean, that I would really, if I lived over there and was of a certain, like if I were my parents' age and mm -hmm. we lived in Britain, uh, the, thing I, the thing I'm sure they would think is that we used to be this great big empire and now you're you're getting some bureaucrat in brussels to tell me that i can't bake my cookies or we call them cookies <laughs> here but exactly you know i mean i'm sure that's frustrating for a certain demographic i'm sure it is yeah and that that's how the debate played out but um I think it's interesting, um, I've got some stats in front of me that kind of talk about reasons why people voted each way. And the, the top reason why people voted Remain was about the economy. They thought that this trading block would be good for the economy, good for businesses, those kind of things. The top reason people voted Leave was bureaucracy and sovereignty. They wanted to feel like um, the famous phrase from the campaign is take back control. Now, I don't know what of or what that refers to, but I think it speaks to each person individually depending on what really matters to them. And that's right. why it was an effective campaign tool that um, essentially won that campaign, the, uh, the, elect the referendum. Um, right. But take back control it was, was something that resonated with a lot of Leave voters. Right. Now, while I've got you on the line, I would say phone, but it's not a phone. <laughs> while I've got you on the line... Um, there's two questions that get away from what I, we I, that I just want to ask you. Mm -hmm. um, 
and it's just I would be an idiot not to ask these two questions. I think the first one is, um, could you talk for a second about uh, about COVID in Britain, mm-hmm. like how it played out, how it's playing out, just to the best of your ability? Yeah, it's it's been a really interesting year for for both politics and um health policy in in britain before 2020 the news was dominated by brexit you could not move for brexit news and coverage now um the news is dominated by covid and so when we first had kind of a few cases in the uk the big message and it has been a message throughout this um period has been protect the nhs The NHS is a national institution in the UK. It is the closest thing we have to a national religion, as I think the saying goes. So there was a big emphasis on protect the NHS. So we had a national lockdown. People stayed at home. They wanted to protect the NHS and not... um, Because obviously uh, hospitals can get full very quickly. And once they get full, then there's knock-on effects on kind of other treatments such as cancer care, all those kind of things. So there was a real impetus to kind of stay at home, don't get yourself into trouble, don't get yourself um, ill, so that the hospitals could keep um, at a manageable rate, that they could treat patients and um, make sure that everyone got the best care they could. Um, Once we got to summer, things relaxed. They relaxed a lot of the rules. We've had things like the rule of six, so you're not meant to meet in groups of more than six. Um, to try and keep the spread down so you're not meeting lots of people and pass- transmitting the virus. And over some of the, the numbers of cases, the, the hospital rates all went down quite a lot. Um, there was always that undercurrent. Um, and then as we've gone into the winter again, it's picked up again. So the impetus is back on protecting the NHS. And the government um, is also very conscious of the economic impact they, they they maintain that health is their number one priority, but they see a lot of people losing their jobs or at threat of losing their jobs if this continues for much longer. They are paying furlough, so they're paying 80% of the wages of a lot of people in this country, the government are, um, for businesses that can't operate. They're very worried about the mental health crisis and the economic crisis that will follow this. So they're trying to now do it in tiers so you're you're in a tier and your your area will be in a tier and that tier so the area i'm sorry so the area of your country is in a tier yep so london job. okay i know the area of your country so your area will be in a tier and each tier has different rules um but yesterday it was announced that pretty much all of england is in tier three and four which are essentially lockdowns with only kind of hospitality open for takeaway and essential shops. Tier four is the official guidance is stay at home. <laughs> um, but this is all going on also within the context of the UK where we have devolution. So Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland have slightly different approaches. Essentially, they're very similar. It, it, there's no kind of drastic changes. It might be that one goes into a lockdown couple of days before or lifts a lockdown a couple of days before one has slightly different rules about what you are and aren't allowed to do they are pretty much um on par but it's really interesting the dynamic because you have a conservative government um 
managing the UK response and the English response. You have a Labour government in Wales managing the Welsh response. You have a coalition in Northern Ireland of two parties that famously don't get along, trying to govern a country through this time. And in Scotland, you have the Scottish Nationalist Party um, with um, Nicola Sturgeon at the head governing them. And it's really interesting to see the different polling and the different um, different opinion polls about what people think of those leaders, because essentially that they're, they're all doing their best for their countries or perceived best or however you'd like to view it. Um, but the there's different ways people perceive how well each leader is doing and each country is doing. So it's been quite interesting to view that from a political angle as well as the health angle. Now all the pin hopes are being pinned on kind of the vaccine. We had um, obviously the American Pfizer vaccine is already in people's arms as we speak. And yesterday we had the Oxford vaccine approved and we, the government have purchased enough to vaccinate everyone if they so want to. So there's a real push now to just get um, vaccines in people's arms in the hope that that will help things to return to normal. Um, but the NHS is under a lot of pressure at the moment, which is why they've had to take us into these higher tiers. Um, and I think a lot of people in the, in the UK, because the NHS is seen as this institution um, that is really valued by everyone, um, a lot of people do respect these rules that they might not have done under any other circumstances because they, they, they want to keep that institution going and um, the pressure off it. But it is certainly um, under a lot of strain at the moment. Okay, let me ask you... Um... Well, gosh, now I have another question, <laughs> but let me, uh, the other question I wanted to ask you is we, we keep talking about labor and I think you call it conservative. Yes. Would you mind broadly speaking, talking about the constituencies for each of the two camps? Okay. So, uh, in the UK, we have a multi-party system. There's um, lots of political parties, but essentially because of the electoral system we use, which is called first past the post, we essentially have two major parties, one of which will win the national election um, most nine times out of 10. So you have the Conservative Party, which is currently led by Boris Johnson and is currently in power. They are um, probably, well, it's small C Conservative is, um, so they are kind of free trade, um, small government, and probably maybe a bit more libertarian. It's really difficult to define the Conservative Party because it is a it's a broad tent. So you have some people who are like really socially conservative, and you have people that are really socially liberal, but they have kind of a combined view of free market economics. Um, so it's a quite a broad tent, but um, they sit on the right of the political spectrum, but I would not say as far right as the Republican Party in the U US. Um, right, I, and, I would agree with that. Yeah, I would say that I've compared them in the past to maybe maybe just right of the Democrats in the US, if you were comparing them, but I've been told by US friends that that's completely misguided. So <laughs> I'll let other people. I mean, the thing about the thing about my country is the the my country is huge yeah like, it's physically huge um so you can have 
the Democratic Party can stand for one thing in one part of the country and mm-hmm. another thing in another part of the country. And it can be totally, I mean, it can be, well, I'll give you an example. And I really didn't become aware of this until I started doing a podcast and, and speaking to people in my own country, right? Mm-hmm. When you say liberal in the Pacific coast, on the Pacific coast, you're talking functionally about a different politician than when you say liberal in the southeastern United States. Yeah. Okay. It's a totally different situation uh, completely. Yeah. It's just they have the same labels. So it's kind of weird because online, like you can, you know, online is really flat, right? So you can Mm -hmm. have a, a Twitter conversation and you can be saying the same words and meaning different things, totally yeah. different things. And like in the Pacific, they're dealing with things that out here in the in the Southeast, we, we don't even, uh, very few people even have to think about that, let alone mm-hmm. live with it moment to moment. It's 51 different countries is, that, 50, is how it, 50, 50 there you go. <laughs> But they're not really countries, they're, they're states. Yes. They're, federalism is like the principle where you, by which you live in two different places at once. Yeah. But Georgia is not really a sovereign country. It's not really mm-hmm. a sovereign place. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say, I would say the conservatives, I think both major political parties are, are what we call kind of like big tent parties as in they cover a lot of ideologies within them but i wouldn't say the gaps within them are as big as what you would see in u.s politics for exactly the reason you outline um and a lot of the issues that are really um kind of big conservative issues in the u.s are not big conservative issues in the uk so things like um abortion and healthcare are not things that are massively discussed in the uk um, in the same way that they are in the US, and both political parties have similar views on those two issues. Um, there isn't that kind of chasm as there might be in the US. And then on the kind of other side of the political spectrum, we have the Labour Party, who are a left of centre party. Um, and and in the UK, socialist isn't the kind of dirty word that I think it is in the US. Um, a lot of people proudly describe themselves as socialist, and they mean that in the way that they, um, it's kind of like a quality uh, um, in terms of um, healthcare access, um, welfare access, um, all those kind of things that is state intervention, um, they see as a really positive thing that can help bring people out of poverty. Right. Now, I suppose, I mean, yeah, and that's, something else i mean you can in this country you can really get into a, a lot of arguments and i i also think that's kind of a a, a demographic breakdown yeah sort of kind of maybe but also more uh, um i guess ge- i want to say geological a geographical mm-hmm. <laughs> breakdown, geographical breakdown as far as like you can be somebody that if you live in a farming community you know, you're you're not really. You know, there, there's that old Chinese proverb of every. What's the proverb? Every grandson believes he's entitled to his grandfather's life. 
<laughs> you know, that's yeah. the proverb. Uh, so there's people, why can't I farm? Even though they themselves couldn't farm if they wanted to, mm-hmm. they just, they think some, it's in the bones, I guess. Yeah. But um, the other thing I wanted to ask was what, this is kind of curious to me. What do you think of, if you know about the American healthcare system, what do you think about it? If, if you think about it at all. It, it seems it seems so distant from what I've grown up with and lived with in the UK. Um, as I say, whether you're left or right, there is a huge amount of respect for the NHS and the healthcare it provides everyone, um, regardless of your background or how much money you have. Um, and the idea that kind of I've seen people say, like on TikTok, I saw a video. It's like, well, how old? How old was your child when you finished paying off your hospital bill for giving birth to them? And that is, it's to be honest, it's an alien concept in the UK. Um, if you're ill, the NHS will look after you, and that that is really important to a lot of Brits. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, I like to say that, uh, like is a weird word here, but I I say that our our healthcare system, I think, is an echo of a of a time when you could be, well, if, especially if you were white. Mm-hmm. If you were white, you could. There was a time where if you were white and had two feet, you could just get a job. <laughs> and I, I just really think that. I think it was in Clinton. It was during Bill Clinton, where okay. there was a there was a shift between uh like most people had health care through a union i think it was under either clinton or reagan but, right so when see clinton, here here you're covered whether you have a job or whether you right. don't whether you're yeah. young old whether you have pre-existing conditions it, it's 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 kind of taken out of your your taxes when you when you pay them as income tax. So you don't even right. really see it going out of your pocket. It's not like an insurance where you have to apply every year and tell them what your conditions are. It's when you move house, you sign up to your local GP practice. And if you're ill, you speak to them or if you go to a pharmacy. And I mean, there are th- some things you pay for, like you sometimes pay for prescriptions and it's about nine pound when you go and collect your prescription, depending on what it is. Um, and we don't, it's also not as commercialized here. So we don't have any adverts for um, drugs on TV. Um, and you don't really go to your doctor and say, I would like this particular drug. Um, you kind of trust your doctor to tell you which drug is best for you. And there's definitely, um, it, it's a flaw, it's not like a perfect system. There's definitely flaws. And um, so, what are it, some of the flaws? just uh, you know <laughs> again again this is getting on to like political points but um there's different arguments about kind of bureaucracy and um how money is spent with the N- within the nhs kind of out of date systems and like, half of them are probably still on really old it systems that slows everything down you also have um there's age old arguments about whether certain things get enough funding um i mean you see it with covid now hospitals are under a lot of pressure um and they need that extra support in terms of kind of making sure that there isn't five hour long wait times and um, all those kind of things. But as a user, I think 
the most important thing to most people is that it's free at the point of use and everything that yeah. goes on in the background is 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 to the policy makers as it were yeah one of the i guess one of the things about covid in this country that i'm that i notice that i wasn't really aware of before was how there's a lot of Americans that just they they don't seem to imagine themselves getting ill. Mm. I don't know how to how to say it better than that. Uh, they they just don't, or they think that they have this divine right to do whatever they want, and if they die of some horrible kidney ailment or whatever, mm-hmm. that's just how they were supposed to go. Can, can I ask, do you sure. need to pay for to have the COVID vaccine in the US? Uh, I genuinely don't know. <laughs> last I heard, um, and again, this is a very, very fluid situation. <laughs> last I heard, I don't think so. Okay. I, there was this period of history or time where COVID was not... So, in this country, we have Medicare, which mm-hmm. does essentially... Well, it doesn't do what the NHS does, but it, it kind of does if you're lucky enough to have it. Like, okay. if you're lucky enough to have Medicare and a supplemental insurance plan, it's, you know, it's yeah. like that. But anyway, some weird quirk of the American legal system is that nothing exists until Medicare says it does. So there was a period of time where you couldn't get a COVID test, not because we didn't know what COVID was, but because right. Medicare didn't hadn't covered it yet. Right? So okay. there, there are people who died that were probably COVID that everybody with a, a brain in their head and a college degree about medicine thought, oh, that's probably COVID. But they couldn't actually prove it because there wasn't right. a test that had been like billable to Medicare, which is okay. a little um see, see, we had the opposite opposite problem almost in the UK in that um, there was... There was a claim going around, and I, I would need to fact check this, but there was a claim going around that if you'd had a positive COVID test within the last 30 days, whatever you died of, you would be listed as a COVID death. So if you got hit by a car, you'd be listed as a COVID death. I can help you there. Um, <laughs> now, now some people claimed that this was why the numbers were going up. And I, I imagine maybe to some marginal extent, but um, I, I can't say that i believe that it it caused all of the numbers to be that case well i can help you there a little bit because i do a podcast about covid19 okay i did um so and again i'm a guy with a master's degree and a google connection so you know i'm qualified but (laughs) there there was a period of time where no one knew where think people were dying of covid or people okay People had COVID and they were, quote, over COVID because there was a period of time where everybody thought you could be over COVID and checked out of the hospital 
and then, oh God, you came down with diabetes, or oh God, your arm fell off, or oh yeah, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Right? So I would imagine. I don't know if you have an insurance fraud scam situation or not, but I would imagine that right-thinking people probably thought, okay, look, the medical science says that this man has co- had COVID, quote, mm-hmm. got over it, unquote, and then a week later turned up to, back to the same hospital with a heart attack. No. Yeah, see I, see, I think the issue in the UK is less of like an insurance fraud kind of thing. It was more just how um, the data was being reported. And that right. data it has an effect on kind of like people's perception of how the government, et cetera, is handling the situation. Okay, so let me... Let so me it's, just... it's less about money or the kind of individual's um, yeah. kind of ability to claim or anything. So let me just plow through this. Okay, so back to our okay. man with the heart attack. All right. So the the right-thinking bureaucrat says, okay, if I think back to the right-thinking doctor who said, I remember when I thought COVID was only lung involvement, and now there's enough people turning up with heart attacks, and we look at it, and COVID does things to the heart, and COVID does things to the arteries, and I think it even thickens the blood somehow. Uh, okay. that you can kind of say that, oh, you can get a clot and a clot can go in your leg or wherever. I mean, Lord knows, I, I talked to a woman in Pennsylvania who knew, I forget how many people uh, who had to have amputations and they, and she knew people that had to have amputations and they would die of things. They died of strokes and they died of this and they died of that. And she was like, well, I mean, so-and-so was 30 and she was healthy. And you're telling me a 30-year-old died of a stroke? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Like that, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, what's funny to me about COVID is that it it settles. I mean, I get it, but it settles into an area. Like it settles along a road or it'll settle into a town, you know. It's just okay. strange. <laughs> I, I'm, I mean, I think it kind of demonstrates the um, maybe the differences between kind of the UK and US healthcare system in that for us it was more about those statistics were more about judging how it was being run than judging what the healthcare policy should be, as it were, as in terms of kind of payment and how much things get funded and how much insurance people need to pay and premiums and all that kind of stuff. And I totally, I totally agree with yeah. you. I mean, and I think one of the, I think one of the main problems in this country with COVID is that for, I forget how many years, but for years and years, we essentially didn't really think about public health Mm-hmm. To the point where it got into the thinking of the average person that you don't really have to think about public health. Until and, you become ill yourself, perhaps. And oh, by the way, apparently there's a good many people in this country that don't think society that thinks that society stops when you leave the front door. Like when you leave the front door of your house, 
mm-hmm. which that that was a shock to me um, personally. But here we are. <laughs> um, I, I I just I don't know I. I'm reading about stuff going on in, in the Dakotas with this virus, and I'm. I tell you, I don't know. <laughs> it, it's you know. um. It's from a kind of political point of view in the UK. Um, a lot. It's also interesting to see, like you have politicians now who are household names that you that the average member of the public would never have known or thought about before kind of like our health secretary is now like everyone knows his name whether they love him or hate him um and that's really interesting because i think kind of bringing it back to democracy you now have people looking at the world and seeing how much impact a government or council or local authority can have on them because they see that um look, the Prime Minister or the um, First Minister of Scotland or Wales can put you into a lockdown and they see government having a bigger impact on their lives and they want to be part of the decision-making of who makes those decisions. So I think... Are the lockdowns, I mean, are they... Okay, so are the lockdowns, I don't want to use the word popular, but are they Um, understood? I think most people feel they're inevitable. Um. And there was, so there was a section of um, MPs who were really unhappy about the lockdown. So we had a lockdown in November and there was a, a group of MPs that really didn't like it because businesses and their constituencies were under threat and they cared about kind of making sure that the economy and there was jobs for people to return to. And now how, as the- How is Britain, I'm sorry. How is Britain handling that? Are they are they paying the businesses? Are they paying? Yeah, the, so we have something called furlough, um, okay. which pays wages, and there's grants, and there's um, deferral of taxes, all those kind of things. So th- there's things in place, but these all cost money and are racking up a debt. So there was a group of MPs that were really concerned about that, but almost as they saw the NHS numbers go up and the pressure on the NHS get greater to the to the point where like you're having people treated in ambulances they came around to the lockdown pretty quickly so I, I I think there's a there's obviously frustration in that people just want to see their families and there was a big debate around how Christmas was handled a lot of people felt that um Christmas was kind of given this special treatment in that they relaxed rules for a few days and then they tightened up the rules at last minute and said that you couldn't go see your family. So a lot of people spent Christmas alone, even though they weren't expecting to. There was a lot of debate around that, about whether it was the right thing to do, whether they should have done it earlier, whether they should have loosened the restrictions at all. And that really upset people because they kind of almost, it was less about the restrictions themselves. It was about the notice and being able to be like, can they plan for the future? Can they plan to go see their family on Christmas Day and also there's people upset saying well why does Christmas get special treatment over any other religious holiday and why does Christmas get special treatment given that the virus doesn't go away for Christmas so that was a really interesting debate because it it hasn't really stuck along party political lines or ideological lines it almost depends your personal circumstances like are you living alone and haven't seen anyone for months or are actually you working from home doing absolutely fine saving a lot of money on your commute and have now got a lot of money sat in your bank account like 
there's so many yeah. different situations that it affects has affected everyone in such a different way that I think it's not ideological people's thought on lockdown anymore. Well, I mean, I remember like when I started my podcast, I actually thought eventually the government was going to have to pay people to sit at home. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, I, I don't remember when I realized this, but I remember realizing it. Oh, that's mm-hmm. not going to happen. Like, oh, okay. We're just not going to get paid to sit at home. And that's kind of when I sort of kind of changed my tune a little bit. But mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I still kind of think that, I don't know, like, I feel like because this is a global world, this is a global economy, and these kinds of viruses are going to keep happening. And I I really think we're going to have to come up with, I say we, and I mean both, you know, both (laughs) Britain and U.S. are are going to have to come up with protocols. I mean... I learned through my podcast that this virus came from the region of the world where viruses come from, right? And that's also where Wuhan, China is. And we're just going to have to, if we want to be these countries where you have these supply chains, you're you're just going to have to realize viruses are going to happen more. You know what I mean? I mean, Yeah, but then there's there's also... This is the difficult thing because a lot of people feel, I think in the UK, feel quite conflicted in that if you're sat here and you work in hospitality, for example, and you've not been able to work for months and your business is slowly slipping away, and even when you are allowed to open, nobody has the confidence to come back, um, you will feel pretty devastated because that that's not only your work, that's also your livelihood. It's what pays the bills, it what allow, allows you to have a nice home, it's what gives you maybe a sense of purpose to get up in the morning it gives you a good mental health or whatever there's lots of knock-on effects to the economic effects and but equally you're sat here thinking well actually i don't want to put people at risk so i'm going to follow the rules and i'm going to um respect the fact that we have to close for the nhs and things like that so there's a real conflict in that people really care about uh, the healthcare side of things and people really care about the economic side of things and there is no easy way to to fix both sides of the argument and, people, and that's why so many hopes are being pinned on the vaccine yeah. <laughs> in that they see that as the answer to coming out of a lockdown. Are people uh, in Britain, are they working from home via the internet a lot or more or whatever? I, again, this is what makes it kind of an issue that cuts across party political divides and ideological divides because um, a lot of people are working from home and if you can work from home like I've been able to then life has maybe been a bit nice for you you've been able to stay home kind of do your work in the day and and spend time with your family but if you're someone who normally would work in a shop and that is your social um, ability and that's like I'm thinking of my mum who works in a shop when she was put when she her shop had to close she sat at home and actually it can get pretty bleak when you're sat at home with not much to do for months and months and months. Right. And, and it, it was months and months and months, wasn't it? Yeah. And it doesn't matter if no. you're kind of middle class or working class that, um, yeah, it can, 
your business isn't able to operate or the company that you work for is unable to operate, it can be pretty, pretty tough. And um, yeah. and that's why people like myself who can work from home, I, I see it as a privilege, really. Um, I mean, the thing I keep noticing, because, you know, I, I'm an observer of society, is I look at what we're doing now and I'm thinking, I remember in 2008 when everybody thought it was going to snap back and we were going to go back to before the housing crash and everything was going to be rosy and blah, 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 blah. Right. And I'm mm -hmm. looking at now and I'm thinking, yeah, you can talk to me about how, Oh, we're going to open up offices and office towers and you know, all this, but I don't think so. I mean, I think maybe for some people, but I yeah, think not every it's not going to be the same as it was. It's not, you're not going to be able to, you might work from home more than you did previously. But again, that's great if you work from home, but if you're maybe a sandwich shop in the center, center of London and yeah. your business relies on all of those people going to the office each day, then you're probably quite worried about the future. And so that's where the conflict comes. And then yeah. also you have, there's a big debate going on at the moment about schools in that the government really wants to keep children in schools and keep them going to schools. But a lot of parents are a, worried about the health of those children. And also a lot of schools are having to send massive blocks of pupils home because of positive COVID tests and interactions. So they're then not in school. They're not learning. Some, some children are lucky. They have a parent who can stay home with them and, and teach them um, and have internet access and a, a good Wi-Fi connection. Other children are going home and their parents are having to go out to work because they're key workers. So they don't have that support. They don't have internet or they might not have a, a laptop that can run the software they need or they don't have parents who are educated to the level that they need to help them. So there's, a, there's those divides as well. So there's a real conflict. Like, do you send the children back to school or do you keep everyone off? There is no perfect answer because yeah. people lose out either way. Also, here, let me ask you this. Do you have a phenomenon in Britain where, because in America we, we have this, where we people thought in America, oh, well, okay, we're all going to live in cities now. Like, we're going to move out of the suburbs and live in cities. And, oh, you're paying way too much money for an apartment. Okay, what you call a flat. Yeah. But then COVID hits, and now that entire ecosystem is either – Unuse it's either unworkable, uh, you know, unsafe, or there's no rationale to it. And just a whole lot of people in this country seem to be moving in with whoever they can, either yeah. because they're out of work or because it's just not safe to live to live in. I mean, COVID travels in an air conditioner unit. Mm -hmm. you know this is the thing it's like from personal experience when we started working from home we set up in and like i'm in a flat in london it's a one bed flat it's only small we don't have a garden so um getting out for exercise or fresh air isn't the easiest because you have to go down to the park and the parks are busy but had i known that i was going to be working from home for 12 months i probably would have moved home but i have that luxury if my family also lives in a one bed flat in london then I wouldn't have that luxury of even the choice to move home. Right. But right. I, I'm not going to do that now because I, I have family at risk that I don't want to put at risk by going home. So I just haven't seen them. And also 
I've got like an entire life in a flat in London and, and to give that up um, also seems like a giving up a bit of um, individuality, individuality and uh, responsibility. So yeah, I think it depended when you did it. It seems too late to move now. <laughs> so I'm well, stuck. <laughs> and it might be for England or Britain, but I mean, who, who knows? I mean, we, you know, I hear on the news, it's going to, the vaccines, are, there's already vaccines in people's arms now in America, yeah. but there's not nearly enough. And who knows when you're going to be able to do enough of that. And also anti-vaxxing is, is all, and that's the other thing. Anti-vaxxing is all of a sudden, you know, we're scratching our heads. And I had mm -hmm. no idea it was this big in this country. <laughs> I knew yeah. people thought it was a thing, but I didn't know it was this big. Um, all right. Yeah, hey. Let me see if I asked you. All right. Let me, uh, is there anything you'd like to tell the internet? Um, I think we, going back to democracy and why I kind of wanted to kind of come on your podcast is the thing I'm working on at the moment. So as I mentioned at the beginning, I run this website called Voting Counts and we promote um, political education and engagement to get people involved in elections. And there are a lot of UK elections coming up next year. And because they're not general elections deciding our um, UK parliament, they're not generally seen as nice and sexy like a uh, general election is. So often the turnouts are low and inevitably with COVID that will have an impact as well. So I think I'd probably just like to shout out that if you are in the UK to make sure that you're registered to vote and got a postal vote lined up and know what elections are happening in your area because there are six different types of elections happening next year. Wow. Uh, six, huh? Yeah. So there's wow. the Scot Scottish Parliament election, the Welsh Parliament election, English local councils, we have regional mayors, the London mayor and the assembly and police and crime commissioners. So those are all the elections to look forward to in May, all on the same day. Wow, that's that's a lot. All right, uh, just uh, hang on the line. I'm going to disconnect. And oh, by the way, everybody, this has been the History Voyager podcast, and I'm having a great day, and I hope you are too. All right, just give me a second. <laughs>